you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 20. Actually, the, the scenes immediately following uh, the triumphal entry that we're celebrating today as Palm Sunday. The words can be found in your bulletin as well as in the scriptures in the pews. Mark 11, verses 11 through 20. And he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, this morning where we remember our Savior and our King paraded through the city, declared Hosanna in the highest. And God, we declare that this morning as we've already done it in song and in word. And now, God, as we come to your, to your word, we pray that by your spirit you would awaken us. Awaken us to the reality of what we see here. That you take your worship and faith in you very seriously. And you call us to do the same. May we be obedient. May we be eager to listen and to hear and to put into practice what you tell us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Facade is not a word commonly used that much in our day. Its most basic meaning is face, as in the face of a building. The architects with us this morning will likely be familiar with that meaning. The facade of a building is normally its most important its aspect of the building, both in terms of its design and its function. An attractive facade, an attractive face, will certainly draw more people, whether they be customers or friends or visitors. There's a reason why businesses dress up the front of their buildings. It invites people to come and to see and ultimately to buy. There's a reason why we as homeowners spend money, sometimes great deals of money, on the faces of our homes. They welcome, they emphasize this place is a home. And if indeed we should ever want to sell this home, it increases the value of the home. But we also know that faces, facades, only tell half the story. And this is where the second definition is helpful. The second definition of a facade is an outward appearance that is maintained to conceal a less pleasant reality. 
We've all likely seen this in person. Let's just take the case of a home. A beautiful house or building on the outside is a complete disaster on the inside. I can remember in high school when I used to work construction where we were called to go to an old farmhouse and to restore it. This farmhouse was beautiful on the outside. The stonework was still intact from whenever it was originally built. The face of it did not reflect its nearly 100 years of age. The inside? Black mold everywhere. The ceilings rotted through, the floors rotted through. Most of the beams and the studs threatening to collapse at any moment. It was damp, it was cold, it smelled awful. I am still amazed that the house itself did not collapse while we were inside it, restoring it. I would not be amazed, however, to find out that I may have lost a few years of good health because of my overexposure to what was inside that house. Countless people likely drove by this house, which sat at a prominent location, and thought, what a lovely old farmhouse. Or wouldn't it be nice to live in that house? Just as a disclaimer, we northerners, we love old farmhouses, so if that doesn't land with you, it's a northern thing. No one, though, would have known the true condition of this house unless they went to it and then actually went through the door. It is true what one science fiction writer says, that behind every glorious facade, there is always something hidden that is ugly. In Mark 11, the text that we just read, Jesus unashamedly confronts the facade of God's people. Right after being hailed as the king, coming into his city, Jesus, the first thing he does is announces judgment. Israel certainly looks good on the outside. Religious and pious activities are thriving. I mean, it's Passover. The holiest day on the Jewish calendar was but a few days away. The streets are crowded with people from all over the area. The temple is buzzing. There's religious excitement in the air. And yet as Jesus strolls in, he sees through it all. It is all for show. It is one grand facade. The Old Testament indictment against Israel from passages like Isaiah 29 still rings true. Where God says, this people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Faith in Israel was a religious expression that was ultimately empty and hollow. It looked good on the outside. Boy, did it look good. But it was hideous on the inside. And sadly, you and I can be guilty of the same. Even our church is not immune. So even as we stand here a week away from Easter, a few days away from Good Friday, let us not be fooled into thinking, into falling for the trap of such a facade, that the outside is all that matters. We see here in Mark 11, the first move of Jesus the King was a direct challenge to the religious mentality and activity of God's people. And it's a challenge for us today. King Jesus condemns the facade of insincere faith and worship. 
And where do we see Jesus' condemnation? We see it here in what many call a Markin sandwich. This is where Mark inserts one story in the middle of another story. In this case, he inserts the cleansing of the temple right in between this cursing of the fig tree. And he does it to emphasize both and to give greater meaning to both. We see here that in a way, the the cursing of the fig tree serves as this private parable for the very public display of the temple's cleansing. Together, the sinful facade of worship in faith, of worship and faith in first century Judaism is exposed. And by exposing it, something has to be done. And in fact, something is being done by Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God and King of Israel. The points are there in your bulletin. Jesus condemns this facade first in the fruitless tree and then second in the fearless temple. First up is the fruitless tree. This is the first scene. Jesus is making the roughly two-mile trek from Bethany to Jerusalem. Bethany, you may be familiar, was the home of his close friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead just a few days earlier. It served as a natural lodging place for Jesus to go in and out of the city over the course of the week of Passover. He would likely travel this route twice a day, once in the morning to the city, and once again late afternoon out of the city. And as any human being might, Jesus becomes hungry towards the end of one of those morning journeys. And at this point, it's kind of funny that some commentators took to a serious debate over whether or not Jesus had breakfast before he left. They actually asked the question of, did Mary and Martha feed Jesus before he left their home? Apparently for them, the sensation of Jesus' hunger needs to be explained beyond the simple fact that Jesus was a human being. He knew hunger, he knew thirst, he knew exhaustion. And this should be even just a small point of that we can take away a comfort for us. That the weaknesses that Jesus tasted included even the mundane of hunger. But Jesus, as he's walking into the city or coming to the city, his stomach begins to grumble. And he looks in the distance and sees something that is actually unexpected. Mark says, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now, if you're like me, you know very little or nothing about fig trees, particularly the timing of the harvest. Fig trees bear fruit twice a year, once in late spring, early summer, and then a second harvest in the fall. When fruit is on the tree, they can be easily plucked off the tree and eaten just as you're going about walking down the road. Figs provided an easy snack for travelers and anyone else who was roaming about the streets in and around Jerusalem. But notice that Mark at the end of verse 13 does say, it was not the season of figs. It's surprising that Jesus would look up expecting to find figs because this time of year is neither early spring, I mean early summer or late fall. Generally speaking, there's no reason why there should be any figs on the tree. It's still too early in the season. But Jesus would have known this. And yet notice there's something going on about this tree. Mark makes it clear that this tree is in 
leaf. Despite the irregular time, the out of the ordinary season, this tree, as gardeners would say, is in full bloom. And full bloom meant fruit. A fig tree in leaf declares to all who see it, get your fruit here. I have it. Come get some. Jesus on the road is not suddenly forgetful of the time of year he was and looking for fruit where it won't be found. He came to a fruit-showing tree expecting to find some fruit. There's nothing extraordinary or bizarre about Jesus' move towards this green, leafy tree. You can even probably imagine the disciples pointing out, Hey, Master, that tree over there, it's green. You can probably find some fruit there. All the signs of this particular tree confirmed there would be fruit here. So when Jesus moves closer and gives a a closer inspection and finds nothing but leaves, this is the surprise. This is the shock. It doesn't matter about the season anymore. This tree should have fruit because it's green. It has leaves. As a young kid, I remember our house growing up backed up to these woods that we love to play in. And at the very edge was a large, very large wild berry patch. My siblings, my neighbors and I would love that stretch of woods. We ate to our hearts and our bellies delight during the late spring and early summer months. Once the berries ran out, however, we were a little bit angry. We grumbled and complained, likely at the bush itself, as the later summer months and early fall rolled around. Also probably because all they had was thorns and no more berries. You might have called us, as they say nowadays, hangry. Where we get hungry and it makes us so hungry that we're angry about it. And it wasn't until we learned that plants have seasons and fruit grows in certain seasons that we finally realized, okay, we got to walk the 10 steps inside to get a snack before coming back out. Jesus, while hungry, is certainly not hangry. His action against this tree is not like some disgruntled kids whining about there being no berries on the bush anymore. No, he sees this tree as a perfect picture of God's people. He sees this tree as a sick tree. It is incapable of doing what it should be doing, bearing fruit. Instead of being ripe for harvest then... This tree is ripe for the burn pile. And in case any might think Jesus is going a little bit too far with this analogy, the Old Testament uses a fig tree to describe Israel on more than one occasion. Through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord called out Israel's sin and wickedness in Jeremiah 8.13. He says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered. And in Joel 1, God's judgment against his people by the hands of Babylon is depicted as a devastated fig tree. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Jesus sees this leafy tree with no figs, and he sees Israel. It's splintered. It's unhealthy, despite it looking healthy. 
and he calls out the facade of God's people, God's people's fruitless religion. Sure, they look the part. They're performing the sacrifices. They're offering up the prayers. They're giving the offering. They're flooding the city at Passover. They are in leaf. And yet they had nothing to show for it. It was all a sham. It was hollow. It was empty. They were not doing their job as God's people in bearing fruit. What should have been a tree producing holiness, humility, repentance, was producing arrogance, wickedness, and self-righteousness. And Jesus' words to the tree are the same words he has with Israel. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. They're words of judgment. And Israel could be sure that judgment was coming. Mark closes this little sandwich in verse 20 by noticing the tree. It's shriveled up. It's withered to the root. It's a statement of God's judgment against what the theologian Herman Bovink called the pseudo-pious and self-righteous Israel. And this same fig tree stands as a warning for us today. I should be bearing fruit. You should be bearing fruit. Each and every one of us collectively as a church should be bearing fruit. If we are not, we should be uncomfortable. We should feel a little bit uneasy. Because this picture of the fig tree tells us that Jesus does not take fruitless trees lightly. He judges them. Read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation for proof. So the question is, are you, am I, are we then bearing fruit? Do our lives reflect the supernatural changes that Jesus promises to bring and to work in us? Are we daily dying to sin and self? Are we actively growing in holiness by seeking him in prayer and in his word? Getting even more specifically, husbands, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church with a sacrificial love? On the flip side, wives, are you loving your husbands and respecting them? Children, are you obeying your parents in the Lord? It may seem like a, not that big a deal, but it is one of the fruits of those who claim to love and follow Jesus Christ. For the singles in our midst, whether you're young or you're old, are you honoring the Lord by serving him and remaining faithful to him? Are we serving our neighbors in word and deed, eager to proclaim the gospel to them? to warn them to flee the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ. As a church, are we known for loving one another, from the greatest to the least? Or do we grumble at the thought of even serving in the nursery? Is the fruit that we're bearing the fruit of the gospel, or is it a little bit more the fruit of our political views? Are we collectively as a church growing in bearing the fruit of holiness? 
the list goes on regarding the fruit that we should be bearing as individuals and as a collective bride of Christ. We should hope and pray to see the same fruit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. It's a familiar list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let us not be fruitless trees, but rather may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, abound with fruit as we love and we serve Jesus Christ. And it is from scene one with this cursed fig tree that Mark moves into scene two, the fearless temple. Now, technically, this scene starts in verse 11. Where it says, and he, Jesus, entered the temple, went to Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, he then goes on. After his triumphal entry, Jesus heads straight for the temple. This fulfills the words of Malachi 3. And it fulfills Jesus' mission to fulfill all righteousness. But it also provides Jesus an opportunity to make some observations. He enters the temple, as one commentator writes, as the sovereign Lord examining the institution to see whether it is fulfilling its divinely appointed mission. Jesus rolls into the temple that late afternoon and starts taking notes. He's letting everything sink in, the sights, the sounds, even the smells. And he's going to take it all back with him on the road to Bethany to sink, let it sink in overnight. Some commentators even envision him wrestling overnight in prayer about what the next move would be. But he is building his case against his people. He's forming the accusations, and he's going to return with the verdict the next day. And I believe this verse, verse 11, does help us gain a better understanding of what Jesus is going to do when he clears the temple. Suddenly, his emotional outburst is not so emotional. His off-the-cuff is not so off-the-cuff. Jesus knew what he was doing when he went into the temple the next day. Unlike our angry outbursts, he was never out of control. He's not grabbing things and just throwing them like a toddler throwing a tantrum. His anger in this sense and in every sense is completely void of sin. All the turning over, all the upending was targeted. It was designed to serve the point he was making. Jesus goes to Jerusalem that next day with the temple in his crosshairs. He's going to expose it for the sham that it is and the worship that it pretends to offer. And after cursing the fig tree, that's what he does. Hear what Mark says, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Sadly, what's reported here is not uncommon. These were regular activities going on in the temple during that day. Even the Passover season could not clean it up. All the chaos and the religious activity reeks of emptiness and vanity. And a little bit of context is going to be helpful here. The sellers, the buyers, and the money changers, they're not in and of themselves bad or despicable things. 
for Passover would see a great number of pilgrims coming from all over to the temple to worship for their sacrifices. And for many, the great distances made bringing a sacrifice, carrying it with them, extremely difficult. Something could happen to this sacrifice. It could get killed. It could die along the way. Something could happen that could render it no longer acceptable. It becomes unclean. And so the temple, when they came to it, would allow for them to purchase an animal that is acceptable, that is healthy, that would be used for a sacrifice. And here they could also exchange their foreign currency for the local one to pay for the animals, to pay the temple tax. All of this would make preparations for their worship easier. It was designed to aid them in their worship. They don't have to worry about all these details. They can come to the temple ready to worship, get their sacrifice, offer it, and sing and praise and declare the goodness of God. But the problem resided in human beings doing what human beings do best, corrupting and defiling. First, we see they corrupt the location. This area of the temple that Jesus is in is the court of the Gentiles. It consisted of the large area that surrounded the temple mount. Here is where Gentiles, outsiders, could come. They could worship. They were invited and welcomed to come. They couldn't go any further, but it was a place specifically designed for them to come and worship. Here they could gather. Here they could pray to the Lord. They could worship at his invitation. But how are they going to do that with all this commotion? If you think it's hard to pray and to focus here on a Sunday morning with all the different noises we have going on, imagine what it would have been, been like for a Gentile to roll into the court of the Gentiles where they are invited to worship and all they hear is bleeding sheep, squawking birds, and auctioneers shouting out prices and deals. All of this activity made worship virtually impossible for the Gentiles. But they also corrupted the act of service. Abuses were rampant with all these wheelings and dealings. They're selling to the highest bidder. These sellers, these money changers, these buyers had much to gain and gain they did. The historian Josephus says that during the Passover week, up to 255,000 lambs, that's just lambs, were slaughtered. That's a lot of money to be made and a lot of money to throw a little bit of tax on here or there. Jesus, however, strolls in with zeal. He exposes them that the worship of God here is no longer about worship. It's about self-interest, about profit. God is altogether an afterthought. But their actions also defiled the most vulnerable, namely the poor, the sick, and the oppressed. Those who should have been hindered the least were those taken advantage of the most. Mark reveals that when he emphasizes the pigeons. If you're familiar with your Old Testament law, the law made provisions that if you were too poor to pay for a lamb, a big animal, you could use a dove or a pigeon at a low cost for purification. These guys are making money off the pigeons. 
No one is escaping their wicked behavior of the buyers and the sellers. But finally, we see that the temple itself is being defiled because it's actually being used as a shortcut for traitors. There's this weird phrase that we may not understand where it says, and Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. It's literally referring to vessels of trade. One with goods to trade could walk through the court of the Gentiles with their goods at the east gate and then exit the west gate and move on their business up the Mount of Olives. Why waste the time to go around the temple to bother with the crowds, to stumble along the way, to run the risk of your good maybe being stolen when you could just take a shortcut right through the temple. And at the center of all of this, standing over all of this chaos, all of this abuse, are the religious leaders and the chief priests. The temple is their domain. They oversaw everything in it. Nothing happened in it outside of their watch. Whether they gave it the explicit green light or not, they're guilty of everything going on in it. The hindered worship, the fraud, the stealing, the oppression, for them, it's worth the profit. I mean, look at the temple. It's booming. It's filled. There's people everywhere. Why should we risk shaking things up by cleaning it up? And sadly, these men, as Jesus would show throughout his ministry, are the biggest sham of them all. They had no fear of God. No wonder the temple didn't either. They could care less about his glory. They wanted the honor for themselves, not his name. Whether God would actually show up in the midst of their worship was irrelevant. And when he did show up, they got angry at him. As we see in verse 18. Because he threatened the good thing they had going. Because Jesus shows up with the true fear of the Lord. He enters the temple with zeal for the Lord's name and for his right worship. And so he declares judgment. Using the words of the Old Testament. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. This is a dual quote. First, it's Isaiah 56.7, which Carl read earlier. Isaiah 56 promises welcome for the Gentiles. It holds out the day that they would come in fully and finally and eternally into God's presence as his people. There would no longer be warning signs. Gentiles don't go any further as there were posted all over the temple. There would be a day where they would come unhindered into the gathering of God's people. And a true fear of God would invite, not hinder, the Gentiles from coming. It would seek to obey his word. A true fear of God would seek to provide for the poor, the suffering, the oppressed who are coming. Not to nickel and dine them for a little extra cash. And a true fear of God would lead all who come to depend on God in prayer. And such fear of the Lord is nowhere to be found in the temple on the day that Jesus visits. But the second quote we see Jesus list is from Jeremiah 7. Where the prophet says, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, 
declares the Lord. Jesus fulfills this text. And the context of that text is the Lord laying out the sins of his people right there for them to see. He says, this is what you're guilty of. And he promises judgment. The house of God, a place that should be for worship and for refuge, has been blasphemously turned into a place where thieves profit and they pillage. House and den are very stark contrasts between what the temple should be and what it is. And again, we see the fear of God is altogether absent. Worship is a sham. It's a mask for the opportunity to benefit from those who come. Now immediately, this may cause, rightfully so, many of us to start thinking of other churches. Because the sad reality is, without a doubt, the fear of God in many churches has been traded for influence and status by far too many churches. Even some in our own denomination. And I'll leave those churches and those leaders to the Lord. But what about us? Would we be characterized, if Jesus were to show up, he is here by his spirit, as a fearing or a fearless church? I hope and pray it would be the former. A church where the fear of the Lord is not only our strength, but is our aim. Now, I admit the whole structure of our liturgy has true worship as its aim. The reason we sing, we declare our sin, our faith, we confess our sin. The reason we hear the preached word, we receive the sacrament, is because this is how we believe God has instructed us in the fear and worship of him. And so we seek to be obedient. But that does not guarantee right and proper worship. We can do all of these things we've just done void of an awareness or a, awareness or a sense of the fear of the Lord. Even our own book of church order says this. It says the forms of public worship have value only when they serve to express the inner reverence of the worshiper and his sincere devotion to the true and living God. Do you gather each and every Sunday with a desire to express your inner reverence and sincere devotion to the true and living God? Or do you simply do it because the benefit that it comes with? Friends, fellowship, stability, the picture of godliness. Church, are we too busy sometimes with all the religious activities that we forget that fear and worship is central to everything that we do? Are we willing to throw out the things that keep us or distract us from worshiping and living as we ought to live? Is our chief aim to uphold the glory of God? Is it to treat him with the fear that he is due. Because if not, Jesus stands ready to judge. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 as fulfillment of his actions here in Mark 11. 
I referenced them earlier, but Jesus in his letters to the churches in Revelation threatens to remove those who are unfaithful. May that not be us. May we be faithful, not only to weekly gather together to worship, but to weekly gather to worship in spirit and in truth. To fear and to honor the Lord above all else. And by God's grace and through his spirit, this will keep us from becoming fruitless and fearless. As we close, we are ultimately left with the challenge of the positive reversals, if you will, of these two depictions. Instead of a fruitless tree and a fearless temple, we're challenged to be a fruitful tree and a fearing temple. This is ultimately what Jesus wants from us. And he promises to judge and to discipline when it's all just a facade. As individuals, he wants us to bear fruit through the power of his spirit dwelling within us. He wants us to go about our days in the church, outside the church, with a reverent fear of the God who created us and delivered us in Christ. And his desire for us as a church is the same. He wants our all and our reverence for his name. He wants the desire to see him glorified flowing out of every single thing that we do as a church. And this certainly is a daunting and a slightly intimidating task. It will certainly stand to challenge some of the things we hold near and dear, both personally and corporately. But it is also a hope-filled task. I would be wrong to leave you here with just kind of a do-better, try-harder feeling that leaves us despairing. We certainly must take Jesus' words to heart, but we must also rest assured that we are not left to ourselves. Jesus himself has set the example, and he calls each and every one of us to follow it. And greater still, as we're going to celebrate on Friday, he died to accomplish it. And he rose again to grant us the power to follow in his steps. Because the truth is, he took the judgment that was deserved for his people. Because he was the fruitful tree. He was the fearing temple. And so we have all we need through him to obey his command. So by the power of his spirit, may we be and work hard to be faithful to his call. Let us pray. God, we come to you acknowledging that we have failed. Too often we as individuals, we as a church are fruitless and fearless. Oftentimes we're fruitless because we rely far too much on ourselves. Forgetting that without you, we can do nothing. Forgive us. By your spirit, work gospel fruit in us and through us. And God, we also confess that as a church, too often we're fearless. We do worship because it's what we do. Forgetting that we have been invited to come into the throne room of the King of Heaven.
to worship at your feet, to declare your goodness and your praise. May that be ever at the forefront of our minds. May it ever be at the forefront of our hearts when we gather to worship and when we go about our days living as your faithful witnesses. Thank you for Jesus, the fruitful tree, the fearing temple, who went to the cross to pay for our fruitlessness and fearlessness. May we find strength in him by his spirit. May you help us to be faithful, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.